0: the foyer, go ahead and make your way in. Last Sunday of 2020, who is ready to kiss this year goodbye? (laughs) Uh, If you guys want to stand with us, we'll pray and get started. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Um, Despite all the craziness that 2020 delivered, I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that... um, each and everything that happened this year was within your will. It was designed by you, and it was carried out by you, Lord. It um, didn't shock you at all what went on this year, Lord. And for the good that came out of it, God, I just thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for everyone here, um, for those tuning in online this morning as well, Lord. I pray that that you would just speak to our hearts this morning through Brad as he brings your word. And um, I pray that this would just be a joyful morning given to you, Lord, in your name. Amen.
1: is my prayer in the desert When all that's within me feels dry This is my prayer in my hunger and need My God is the God who prays my love Oh, how he loves us, oh.
0: As Brad speaks this morning, God, you would just speak through him, Lord. Ah, In your name, amen.
2: Well, good morning. Somebody thinks I need a candle. I think we came close (laughs) enough to setting the church on fire this week already. So I'll just trade that there. I'm going to put my glasses on because I'm an old man now. And hi, my name, oh, there you are such lovely looking people. My name's Brad. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here, and I get the opportunity for my second year in a row uh, to have the last word of the year before we go into another year, and I am honored uh, because it truly is a privilege to be able to say, okay, so what's the final thing to say? Because this has been a doozy of a year, huh? I mean, I've even heard people say, like, this is the worst year ever. It's like, calm down, okay? There there were some pretty bad years. (laughs) But it was a bad year, right? And I don't think that that's an arguable point. And and I've heard a lot of people say things like, man, I just, I can't wait to get out of 2020, you know, to put this, like, horrible train wreck of a year behind me, right? Because 2021 is going to be absolutely great compared to 2020, I, you're giggling. Maybe, maybe you're thinking what I'm thinking. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, then what you're thinking is, I got good news and I got bad news for you. Bad news first. 2021, it might be worse than 2020. Right? I mean, it, it's, you got to embrace that. We couldn't have controlled what happened in 2020. We certainly can't control what's going to go on in 2021. It might be worse. The hope is not in the fact that the calendar is changing to a new year, but therein lies the good news. Because even if 2021 is worse for the Christian, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. See, we're leaving a Christmas season, the most wonderful time of the year. And the, the beginning of the Christmas season, to the beginning of the Christmas story even, starts in Matthew one twenty three, go ahead and, and flip over to there. Grab your Bible. You are going to be turning around or turning many pages over and over in your Bible today. You, I apologize ahead of time for the paper cuts you will inevitably get in your thumb. But good news, if you got a Bible for Christmas, this will help kind of break in that, that little spine. Anybody get a Bible for Christmas? No one? No? You all got like things like cars and, and planes and your own whatever. All right, whatever. That just means that you all had scripture, and man, that's a huge blessing to think about. Um, but the Christmas story, I digress. The Christmas story started with an in- incredibly important concept that I want to use as our launching point for the morning. In Matthew 1.23, what we see is, if you have the ESV or another version that does this type of thing, the, the type in the chapter looks a little different than the rest of the paragraphs because it's a quotation of a prophecy that occurred before the moment. See, when the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have the Messiah, Matthew, the author of this gospel, points out that this was a fulfillment of a prophecy. The prophecy is described in 123. Look there. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son... And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Everyone say Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That was the low-hanging fruit. In case you've never heard me speak before, I'm going to ask you questions and I want you to answer. So that one was really easy because I just told you what to say. No possibility that you could have gotten it wrong. Okay? But it, they get harder from here. It's, it's all right. You'll be fine. Don't worry. People are getting bunched up. <laughs> this is a safe place to look wrong, people. If, if, ju- if people judge you for being wrong in church, they're sinning. <laughs> Now, none of us in this room, or probably very few of us in this room, come from Jewish heritage. So fortunately, Matthew translates this last word for us, Emmanuel. What's it mean? God with us. You see, the story of Jesus' birth starts with reference to an even larger story. Like I said, this was a prophecy that pointed to something that was uttered and recorded back in Isaiah chapter 7. Before we read this, I'm going to stop and pray. God, I'm struck by the reality as I approach you in prayer, how spoiled we are. We are warm. Almost everyone in here had their own text of Scripture. We are here. We are meeting. The church is gathered. The blessings abound. God, let our souls be nourished by your truth so that these blessings would not just give us happy happy feelings, but it would be the foundation upon which we stand and become a blessing to others. Use this time for your glory. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 4, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 7, and we're not going to turn there because like I said, we're going to turn to a bunch of different passages, so I want you to have some time to warm your fingers up. But in Isaiah chapter 7, was when this prophecy was originally uttered. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Let me tell you the context into which that was originally stated. See, the people of Israel had a period of time where they divided. The land actually became a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they did not get along with one another. In fact, they each warred with one another in order to try to have more seniority so that their kingdom would be the kingdom of Israel. So just like Game of Thrones typically works out, they have actually I've never seen the show, but I'm assuming that they have all kind of alliances, right? Because you're aligning with other a Game of Thrones fans. Anybody? Okay, anything that you've ever seen that's an old timey thing where you got kingdoms. They align with one another to get more power, right? Because the individual kingdom isn't strong enough in and of itself. And so the northern kingdom aligned with Assyria, and they were going to destroy the southern kingdom so that they might have the ultimate power. They might be Israel. And it is to the southern king that God reveals himself and says, calm down, I will be with you. That which you're scared of is going to be vanquished but it doesn't necessarily go the way that you might expect it. You see, Israel has a very long and, dare I say, sordid story with the idea of God being with them. For those of you that have been students of Scripture for a really long time, this will just be review for you. Um, and, And so check me along the way just to make sure that I'm not spouting anything. I'm not going in any weird directions. But if you're not familiar with Scripture, here's kind of a general Uh, overview of God being with his people. See, if we start in Genesis 3, what you see in Genesis 3 is the first humans, Adam and Eve, have a relationship with God in such a way that it's implied that God was literally walking with them and talking with them just the same way that you and I could walk and talk through the parking lot after church. But it all was lost when they decided to turn their back on God's command. As they were removed from the garden... God was no longer with his people, or it didn't seem that way. And it wasn't until the the story of the Exodus where we started to see it drastically. In the Exodus, when God, through Moses, first goes to Egypt, and there's tons of plagues that then free the Israelites. They haven't become the Israelites yet because they've just been the Hebrews in Egypt. They're removed from Egypt, and they go out. And once they've crossed the Red Sea, how is God with them, Bible scholars? what do they see? Cloud, good. Fire, smoke, scary stuff, right? We've changed from, we're going to walk gingerly through the parking lot and chit-chat, and now we've got cloud and fire, and it actually was so scary that there are moments in the Exodus story where the people of Israel tell Moses, hey, tell God to keep his distance. This whole being with us thing is way too scary. You go talk to him and tell us what it is that he wants us to do and say and be, okay? Keep us separate because that cloud, that smoke, that fire is way too scary. Then they go to enter, bless you, Scarlett. They go to enter the promised land in the conquest under Joshua. And do you remember what it is that God had them built that they carry around with them? The ark, right? Raiders of the the lost, what? See, low-hanging fruit. I'm bringing you alone. Now, the ark wasn't just some magic box. It was actually to be a representation of the throne of God. It was his presence. And the Israelites would carry around the ark, especially when they were getting ready for a battle because that made them completely unstoppable. No matter how large the enemy was, if they had the ark, they could beat them. When they lost the ark, they would lose. Teaching the people of Israel that God being with them would actually provide them the hope that they needed. It was under this type of context then that God uttered that phrase to Ahaz that I already mentioned to you that was recorded in Isaiah 7.14. That after the kingdoms... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a really big one. A really big one. So after the conquest was there, they finally get... Uh, they get into the land, they've become established as the people of Israel, and then they build the temple of God. God had been dwelling with them in smoke and fire in this tent, often referred to as the tabernacle. But once they got into the land, they built this huge, ornate, opulent palace for God. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, it's recorded that Solomon then dedicates this temple. And as soon as Solomon is done with his dedication, what happens, Bible scholars? Do you remember? He fills it with his presence, and what's it like? Dark Dark and scary, lightning and smoke and fire and all of those things that they had come to associate with the being of God. Now we get to the story where the kingdoms have divided and God is having to reassure Ahaz in Isaiah 7.14 that God is going to be with him, but it takes an unexpected turn. What God actually allows is for the Assyrians to come in and destroy the temple. Now, after the temple is destroyed and the people of Israel are removed from the land, God allows under the next couple of generations for some of the people to go back and to rebuild the temple. They put it back up the way that they were hoping that it would be and that Israel could go back to the way that they had come to enjoy it. And they dedicate the temple. And do you know what happens? What happens? God doesn't show up. God is oddly absent from his own party. They've built this temple again. And the last time they built it, God had filled it with the smoke and the fire and the presence. This second temple, God didn't show up. And nearly 500 years passes before Matthew records for us that what God was telling Ahaz was not about God filling the temple, but that Emmanuel, the meaning of Emmanuel, was going to change in a way that Israel had never experienced it. You see, Israel's previous understanding of God with us meant that Yahweh would protect us, would allow us to win in battle. But after the appearance of Jesus, God changed the meaning of God with us. And he did so by changing the wording. The wording changed from God with us to God in us. Now, it's a very microscopically different word. For those of you that are not grammar warriors like myself, a title that I bear with pride, given to me by my 10th grade English teacher, and I hold it in high esteem. (laughs) With and in are both prepositions, but the meaning between the two of them is kind of different, isn't it? It's fairly different for somebody to be with you versus somebody to be in you. Paul, who was a highly educated Jew, spent the majority of his ministry attempting to help people understand this shift. That Though Jesus had taught extensively on this topic, Paul needed to continue to explain it to the Jewish and Gentile churches. I want you to, show, I want you to see one of the passages where this shows up, uh, in a very obvious way. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And in chapter 1, he shares with them the significance of this shift of God with us, changing to God in us. Look at Colossians 1, and let's start reading in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my, what's that next word? Sufferings. I want you to keep that in mind. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what, people? Christ in you. And read the next phrase, too. The hope of glory. A mystery was hidden for the ages, but was now revealed. That Christ was not just going to be with us, he was going to be in us. And that inness would be the hope for our glory. Interestingly, Paul uses this idea of being in Christ over 160 times in the text, in his letters. And the past few months, God has been showing me that though I have been following him for a very long time and have devoted myself to understanding scripture, this has been an idea that I have completely neglected. Now, if you decide to buy a red car, what will inevitably happen over the next week? <laughs> It's amazing that that was the, that was said in the first service as well. Some of you have some law enforcement problems you need to sort out. <laughs> I know a guy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, aside from all right, make it a blue car if the red car is what you're afraid of. Let's you you decide to buy a blue car. What's going to happen to you the next couple of weeks? What are you going to see? A billion blue cars, right? You're going to see what you have been paying attention to, what you have been thinking about. This term of being in Christ, this is my red car right now. It's everywhere in the New Testament. How could I have missed it? I mean, I would read it, and maybe you've had this experience before where you you read a phrase, but you don't even necessarily think about its significance, and you just kind of move on. This idea of being in Christ is so huge. It became foundational for a lot of the ways that even Jesus taught and became foundational for the ways in which Paul had to explain Jesus' teachings to the churches that were spreading everywhere. Being in Christ was a major shift for God's people. Let me show you one of the first moments where it started because it's, it's one of my favorite stories about Jesus with his followers. Go over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. It's hard to not lick your finger. That's a habit you got to get out of these days. Don't do that. John chapter 6. One of my favorite stories happens here because uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is better than the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He is healing people. He is preaching things that people have never thought about or heard before. And he is attracting quite a crowd. There are people just swarming to be around Jesus. Jesus. And it's to this group of people that Jesus starts teaching them, but in, sometimes in ways that they weren't really ready for. In John 6, 56 is one of these ways. John chapter 6, look at verse, uh, let's start at verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. You know what the reaction to this statement was? A whole lot of people went, I'm out. I'm done. I was not signed up for some type of cannibalistic crusade here. I was looking for somebody that was going to change my life. This dude shows up on the scene and starts saying that he wants me to eat him. Weird. Now that in and of itself would be a fun story. But to me, my favorite part of the story is what happens next. Jesus sees all the people leaving. He turns to his apostles, the ones that you think of when you, hear, when you think of Jesus' disciples, you know, the 12. He turns to them and goes, hey, are you guys leaving too? And Peter goes, where else are we going to go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. Which here's a loose translation of what that means. Peter was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm going to stick it out and see what happens. Think about that for a moment. It was on that person that Jesus formulated his church and started a revolution the world has never seen. That was the faith that it took to start. I don't really know what it is you're talking about, but stick it out and see what happens. That was it. I find that to be very encouraging. But nonetheless, look again at verse 56 so you can see the idea that I wanted to pick out. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides where? In me, and I, where? In him. One of the unique things about the Gospel of John is that it records in large detail what has come to be known by theologians as the upper room discourse. On the last night before Jesus was crucified... He spends what John records uh, from chapters 13 all the way through chapter 17, an extensive period of time trying to teach his followers what they needed to know to deal with the reality that he was going to be leaving. And oddly enough, as he was preparing his followers for his departure, he tells them it's actually going to be to their advantage that he leaves. And let me show you a couple of verses that indicate or start to show you why that's the case. In this upper room discourse, go to John 14. I'm going to point out a few verses to you here. Start in verse 16. John fourteen sixteen. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. See this distinction that Jesus is making? He is currently with you, but he's going to be in you. If you stay in chapter 14 and look at verses 19 and 20, you'll see this. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you'll see me because I live you also will live in that day you will know that I am in my father and you where in me and I where in you Jesse on the on Christmas Eve covered a substantial portion of John 15 the vine and the branches section Also part of the Upper Room Discourse. Look at 15.5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides, where? In me and I, where? In him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now Jesus has been hammering this concept over and over again, that I'm going to be in you, that you're going to be in me, that we are going to be in the Father. What's the point of all this in-talk? Why does Jesus keep repeating this concept over and over? He starts to explain himself in chapter 16. Look at 16, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming where, when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus knew that his followers were about to really go through it, and not in a good way. Friends, if you read first century Christian history, the apostles had a way worse year than 2020. Oh, yeah. It was rough. And he was telling them these things to keep them from falling away. Look at 16, verse 33. I've said these things to you that where? In me, you may have peace. In the world... You will have tribulation. You're going to have hard stuff. But take care. I've overcome the world. One of the most encouraging passages in all of the New Testament is found in Romans chapter 8, where Paul takes this concept that Jesus was sharing with his followers, prepping them for the fact that he was going to go, teaching them that they would be in him, and that that was going to change everything. Paul picks up on that idea in Romans chapter 8. Flip over there, and I encourage you, if you're finding yourself needing some encouragement from scripture, spend some time this week reading Romans chapter 8 and seeing what is yours in Christ. I'm just going to pick for you a couple of verses here. In Romans chapter 8, we're just going to read verses 31 to 38. What shall we say to these things? Romans eight thirty-one. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also give to him graciously all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Think about that question for a second. Who can bring a charge against you who are in Christ? It's God who justifies, right? It, it, the phrase has become very cheap because we see it poorly tattooed on many people. Only God can judge me, right? But don't cheapen it in your head of what the phrase actually means. You face judgment here, fine, fine. You're done after, I don't know, a few decades at worst. Then you stand before God. And who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's there to condemn you, verse 34? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is currently praying for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 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 no. I added a few notes. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Friends, pause for a second. How many things were covered by that list? Everything. Everything. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The love, you'll notice in the phrase, was in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What could possibly happen to you in 2021 that could separate you from Christ? Nothing! Nothing. I yell because sometimes yelling is helpful. <laughs> I whisper because sometimes that's helpful. I, I, I will say it, in, I'll say it in different languages if it would be helpful for you to understand that absolutely nada, that's Espanol, can separate you. (laughs) Thank you, Anka, because I don't speak German. Nothing can separate you if you are in Christ. Now, because I told you this is my red car, I want to share with you just three other quick things that in and of themselves would be independent sermons, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them, but being in Christ also gets you three other things that right now I would argue our society is desperate for. Number one, as you're turning to John 4, I'm going to show you that being in Christ brings fulfillment. Being in Christ brings fulfillment Jesus was sitting down with a woman at a well. All kinds of things were wrong with this picture. But Jesus talking to this woman in John 4, starting in 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone that drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman, like any sane human being, responds in the way that you would expect. She says, give me some of that action. Right? I want that. If that's going to help me get that which I want, I want that. Because friends, if you're anything like me, and you probably are, we are just a ball of conflicted desires constantly at war with one another. You want this, and it's in contrast to that, and you don't seem to want the things that you wish that you wanted, and so you want to want other things, but you're not wanting them very well. You're actually wanting these things, and it's because we are, as one of, uh, one of my favorite writers said, he says that your wanter is broken. Christ takes those desires and brings them into order and allows the fulfillment of how they were designed. Being in Christ brings fulfillment, which brings a wholeness and a calmness and a peace that this world cannot understand. Number two, not only does it bring you fulfillment, it also brings you unity. If you turn over to Galatians chapter 3, I have quoted this verse So many times in the last six months as our society has tried to implode itself by dividing in any way it possibly can. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us what we get in Christ. We get unity. Look at 3, starting in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one, where? In Christ Jesus. If you look at this list here, if you look at how people have a tendency to, dis- to divide, you will recognize some things. First, there's in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek. The ethnic divide that occurs from different races, and not just the different racial inequalities, but that had religious undertones to it as well. In Christ Jesus, that division is nothing. There is neither slave nor free. The socio and economic ways that we divide from each other, the poor and the rich... Those who are literally enslaved to a system and those that are that system. In Christ, they're one. They're united. There's no male and female or however many millions of different genders you want to try to argue that there are because in Christ, they're one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Where is our unity? It doesn't come through social programs. It doesn't come from protests. Friends, I can tell you firsthand, it certainly doesn't come from giving the government more responsibility to help you get along. Our unity comes from being one in Christ, and our unity will only be found as we strive to help others become one in Christ with us. Being in Christ brings fulfillment. Being in Christ brings unity. Finally, as you turn to John 15, I want to show you that being in Christ brings purpose. In that same vine and branches passage where Jesus says that we can do nothing if we are not abiding in him, he then responds to this in chapter 15 with the verses that we find in 14 through 16. And I want you to not cheapen this idea in your head. Before you start even reading the text, I want you to think about who's saying it. It is Jesus who is saying it. If you study the book of Colossians, you find that Jesus is literally the one holding together the universe as I am speaking. He is the one allowing there to be air to breathe. Why are we not disintegrating right now? Because Jesus is the one holding us together. He is the one that utters this phrase to you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I am not worthy of that. I am not worthy of being friends with that Jesus that is holding together the universe as we speak. I'm not even worthy of being most of your friends in this room. For those of you who have worked very hard to try to be my friend because it is very hard work because I'm a terrible friend, you can attest to the reality how hard it is to be a good friend. Jesus calls me, calls you his friend. What do I what should I be called? Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. I would even stop you there. I don't even feel like most of the time I'm worthy of being called Jesus' servant, right? Like a servant has a, a, an air of dignity about it. That when Jesus asks me to do stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of busy over here, Jesus. I don't really know if I got time for your stuff. He's not even going to call me that. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. Why? For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. What Jesus told us in that passage is that if we abide in Him, we bear fruit. That gives us purpose something to live for that's outside of ourselves. Jesus elsewhere in his ministry tried to warn people that if you spend all of your time all of your time trying to save yourself, trying to better your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for me, that's when you're really going to find real life. That's when you find purpose. Something that actually will last outside of you. My friends, we spend our time on so many things during the week that will not outlast us. So many things. If we would spend our lives focused on seeing and living out what we are in Christ, it gives us the opportunity to bear fruit, to join with God in his saving mission, to live for something that actually lasts beyond this decaying thing that stands before you. The musicians are going to come up and we're going to respond to God in light of the truth that's here. But I want to share this with you as we close. My friends, it's not a difficult argument to make that 2020 has had some difficulty in it. And the bad news is that 2021 might be worse. But for those of you Who are in Christ, he has told you that you are in him, that you might have peace and not fall away. What has he told you this morning? You are in Christ. Nothing can stand against you. You are in Christ. Your desires can finally be fulfilled. You are in Christ. You can finally experience the true unity that our society is trying to build. You are in Christ. Your life can now have purpose and meaning. If you are in Christ, what can separate you? What can stand against you? If 2021 is 10 times worse, bring it on. Bring it on. Emmanuel has gone from not just God with us, but God is now in us. In a way that never before in the history of mankind, you now have the opportunity. He is in us, and we are in him. So remember that whatever may come from this next year, we are in Christ. Jesus, I thank you for the hope and the peace that that provides us. We don't deserve to be your friends. We don't deserve your sacrifice. We deserve Literally nothing from you. And you give so freely. You bless us by not just being with us, but by living deeply entwined and enmeshed with who we are, being involved in every aspect of our lives. We praise you for it. Spirit, fill us that we might live out this oneness with you, that the world might see it and know it. And come to enjoy the things that are ours being in you. Amen.
0: Amen. Will you guys stand with us as we sing this last prayer?
1: The Lord bless you and keep make his face shine upon you be gracious to you the lord turn his be gracious to you.